Guys, let's first do review. Who can tell me the, what the first candle represented? Yeah, hope. Now, when we say hope, what do we mean? Ellie? Nope. You, you hope? Okay, no, yeah. I, I don't. Adeline, what do you think? Yeah, hope is like, um, is faith in the future. It's a confident expectation that God will do what he said. Yeah, and so that's different from a lot of the hope that we see in the world, which kind of has this uncertainty about it. Okay, what was the second one that we lit? Yeah, peace. Man, we're doing good. And when we say peace, when we celebrate peace at Christmas... We're celebrating peace between who, Ellie? Jesus. Okay, yeah. Our, Jesus made peace between us and God, the Father. <laughs> Love it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Guys, this just gives you a little bit of insight into what every Tuesday night at Hide and Seek Club is. This is just, this is my natural habitat. This is where I live. Okay. So, yeah, Peace. Peace is peace between us and God. That's a wonderful thing. What was the third one? Josiah. Love. No. Clara? Joy. Joy. Last week we talked about joy. And joy, guys, when we talk about joy, it is a joy that is unstoppable, unbreakable, and that never ends. That's different than the kind of joy we experience in, in life, in the world. And now, I know you already said, you told me before I ever came up what this morning's candle is. Go love, ahead. Love. Love. Okay. Guys, can I tell you a really quick story? Yeah. Let me first start by asking a question. There, we got it. When... When you, how many of you go and get real Christmas tree, like a, a not, not, not an artificial tree, but I like artificial trees as well. All Christmas trees are awesome in my book. I do not like artificial trees. But when you go to get a real Christmas tree from a Christmas tree lot, a tree that was cut down, what kind of things do you look for in a good Christmas tree? Adeline? Not like spaces in between. Okay, so like it's got to be full, like no big um, holes, empty spots. Yeah, Josiah? Bunch of pine leaves, needles, yeah, needles, yeah. So, you, so it's, again, you just want like a very full, full of needles, beautiful. Yeah. What do you think? Has to be below six feet. Has to be below six feet. This sounds. I think we're <laughs> we're getting. I'm getting some insight into the layout of the Williams home. Okay. So, do you have low ceilings in your house? Or is that more like a cost issue? Because above... Yeah, right. Okay. There's lots of reasons to want it below six feet. I'm with your parents. Okay. Adeline? Strong branches. Strong branches. Because you've got some heavy ornaments, and, you know, they've got to be able to take the weight of those ornaments. Yeah. Okay. A couple more. Yeah. The one you want. The one you want. Yep. It's got to have a good top to it, right? To, yeah. Yeah, because sometimes you'll see Christmas trees that have like a funky fork at the top, and you're like, what's going on with that? That's hard to work with. You have to saw yours off. Yeah, absolutely. Ellie, last one. You need to find one that isn't like 
You need to find one that's not tiny, so not stunted. You want some other things you guys didn't mention but are commonly looked for. You want one that <laughs> smells good. Have you ever, like, stuck your face in there? No. <laughs> you guys don't do that? Am I, am I weird for doing that? Yes, yes, yes. All right, shh. Let's not give them too much insight into Tuesday nights at Hide and Seek Club. Okay. Okay, and then another one is you kind of want it to be straight. Like if you have a tree that's really crooked, you know, that's no good. Yeah. Guys, I, I want to tell you about a friend of mine I had in California. His name was Tim. And he did something I thought was really cool with his family. Every Christmas, him and his family would go to a Christmas tree lot, and they would look on purpose for the ugliest Christmas tree they could find. And that's exactly what your parents did. No, my parents didn't do that. You just know the story. You're mixing things up. Okay. <laughs> but no, it's true. My friend Tim and his wife Lisa, they would take their kids to a Christmas tree lot. This is when I lived in California. And they would look for the absolute ugliest tree they could find. Why? Why? What a great question. The reason is because celebration... Christmas is a celebration of a God who came into the world in search of you guys. Have you ever thought about it that way? Nope. And when he came into the world looking for you guys, did he come looking for the most beautiful, bestest, no. well-formed human beings ever? Did he come looking for people who were just as righteous and good as could be found? No. no. When God came into the world looking for you, he came looking for people who were crooked. And we were missing some things. And we weren't altogether right. We were broken and withered. In fact, we were dead. <laughs> we were dead. The Bible says, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's Ephesians 2. So, and Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his love for you in this, in that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And so they brought home the ugliest Christmas tree they could find, and they loved it. They decorated it. They put lights on it and ornaments, and they made it beautiful. And... And that's what God is doing for all of you who have put your trust in Jesus for salvation. He's decorating you with good works. He's making Christ visible through you. You're being decorated and made beautiful in Christ. I love that Christmas tradition, but I haven't been able to talk Miss Sarah into doing it. <laughs> that's not true. I think she'd probably be down. That was a joke at her expense, and that's wrong for pastors to do. <laughs> and there will be a price to be paid later. <laughs> You'll understand someday. So guys, when we talk about love at Christmas, when we talk about hope, it's a different kind of hope than the world experiences. And when we talk about peace, that's a different kind of peace than the world celebrates. And when we talk about joy, guys, that is a joy that the world does not understand or experience. And when we talk about the love that we celebrate at Christmas, that is a strange kind of love. 
Because it's a love that loves the unlovable, the unlovely, that loves us. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for my friends here at Junior Church. And God, I just thank you for the candle of love this morning that we've lit on this fourth Sunday of the Christmas season. And Father, we just pray, Lord, that um, you would grow in us a love for the things that you love. And Father, we just thank you that you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go get it, guys. Let me pray before we dive into God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask for your help in this time. Guide us as we enjoy you in the midst of your word. And Father, open your word to us and shape us by it this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, you just uh, heard uh, that the four candles are hope, peace, joy, and love. These four. Uh, This is an old Christian tradition. It does not go back to the Bible days or anything like that. In fact, it began in the 1500s in Germany, where ever since then, uh, the middle of the 16th century, Christians have been lighting Advent candles to represent these four attitudes that the truth of Christmas inspires in all of those who have found salvation in Jesus. The knowledge of Jesus' coming into the world is full of meaning for those who have grasped the significance of Jesus' coming into the world. And our response to the fact of Christmas is to feel deeply a profound hope, peace, love, and joy. One of the interesting things about uh, these four attitudes is that they are celebrated and approved of by nearly everyone on the planet. Everyone, and I mean almost everyone, thinks hope is a great thing. So too are peace and joy and love. I mean, if we did a man-on-the-street interview in Presque Isle and we asked people, do you like hope? They'd say, yeah, yeah, that's a great thing. And the same with the other ones. So someone might wonder, what is so uniquely Christian about our celebration of these things? Well, of course, uh, what sets apart a Christian hope from other forms of hope is that it is, a, it is attached to the person of Jesus. Uh, when we get specific about the basis of our hope in the gospel, and when we proclaim that peace comes through surrender to a specific God and on his terms. And when we talk about our joy that is anchored indestructibly in the future-believing promises of God, and when we talk about a love that calls us to take up our cross and to lay down our lives in service to others, even if they be unworthy, in the way that Jesus modeled for us, these things take on a different quality altogether, don't they? So our goal this Christmas season has been not to talk about hope, peace, joy, and love in an abstract, general kind of way, but rather as they relate to Jesus' coming into the world. And this morning, of course, marks the fourth Sunday that we've spent together this Christmas season around the Advent wreath, 
And it's, today is the Sunday that we've set apart to celebrate the love that came down at Christmas. And we're going to anchor our thoughts this morning to two verses, John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16, the two John 3.16s in the Bible. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read them, and then I have a few thoughts I want to draw out of them this morning. John 3.16, one of the more obscure texts in the Bible, says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, John 3.16 is arguably the most well-known verse in all the Bible, but it is not usually thought of as a Christmas verse, but, but it absolutely is. Uh, when it talks about God giving His Son, that act of giving, the moment of that giving is Christmas. That is clearly, an ex- that is clearly a description of Jesus' coming into the world. And how appropriate that the beginnings of Christmas are found in this extraordinary act of giving. What an incredible demonstration of generosity from God on high right at the beginning of our Christmas hope. John 3.16 tells us what the motive behind that act of giving was. It says, for God so loved the world. Love. That's the motive behind the giving. However, and I think this is helpful to see, and I only saw it recently, um, so maybe if you've known this for a while, you're, you're ahead of me on it, but when it says, for God so loved the world, I guess I always thought that meant that for God loved the world so much, that it was a statement about the, 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 the strength of feeling for the world that God had. But I don't think that's true. I think it's more accurate, it would be more accurate to say that this is not a statement of how much God loved the world, but rather the way in which God showed His love for the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. The way God loved, showed His love for you was that He gave His Son. That's the form that his love took. I think that's what's meant by the word so there. And that love was costly. It was sacrificial. It was generous. (laughs) So generous. And guys, maybe most importantly for our celebration this morning, it was completely undeserved. Completely. It is absolutely not a statement about our worthiness, but about the incredible, surpassing excellence of the God who is love. It's a love that sought its joy in your joy. And Christmas is a celebration of this kind of love, which is an incredibly short supply in the world. You just don't see this. 1 John 3.16, which I think can be a great companion verse for John 3.16, helps us understand it. 
has this statement in here. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And the question I want to spend time this morning is just asking this, this Christmas season. What can we learn about the love that came down at Christmas from him, Jesus? Uh, This is an idea that's central to our church life. Here at State Road, we talk a lot about being a people who love God and who love others and who love in action. Uh, These are three guiding statements that we understand to be what a disciple of Jesus is. A disciple of Jesus is a sincere, from-the-heart imitator of Jesus. And we didn't just adopt these statements out of thin air. We didn't read a book. or Well, we did read a book. It's called the Bible. (laughs) But we didn't uh, come up with them in some way. What we did was uh, there's a very important passage where Jesus was asked by a teacher of the law, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, this is his answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first of our, two, of our three statements. A follower of God, a follower of Jesus, is somebody who loves God. And that's the greatest commandment, according to Jesus. But then he gave the guy a freebie, a twofer. Here, I'm going to throw a second one in as a bonus. He said that that's the great and first commandment, and a second one is like it, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, guys, that's the second of our three statements. That's love others. And then Jesus makes this incredible statement. He says, on these two, these two commands, depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, all of God's revelation to mankind, all the commands, all the do's and the do nots, can be summarized in these two representative statements. Love God with your whole person and love others. And then we add a third statement to make explicit what the Bible clearly implied, which is that love should take the form of things that we do. It should be an act of love. Biblical love is never just a feeling. It's never even just words. It finds expression in what we do. And so when we look at this statement, by this we know love, let's hold it up to something Jesus said. Let's hold it up to his statement that the stuff of love consists of loving God with your whole person and loving others, and loving in an active way. So one of the first things I want us to see about the love that was modeled for us in in Jesus is that loving God is at the center of what Jesus did. What he did for us on the cross was a demonstration of Jesus' love for the Father, He makes this statement explicit in the book of John. He says, but so the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. In John 6, 38, he said, for I have come down from heaven. What a statement. What a Christmas statement. Not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. I came down at Christmas to do the will of the Father. And then pair that again with John 14. But so the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Christmas is a showpiece demonstration of Jesus' love for the Father. John 17, 4 says this. This is in the high priestly prayer before going to the cross. Jesus prayed to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now that's talking about Jesus' love for the Father. And anytime we talk about a vertical love for God, we will see that it finds horizontal expression among our fellows, among others. And Jesus made a statement to all of us who would say that we are also followers of Jesus. Again, sincere from the heart imitators of the one who came down to love the Father by doing what he had commanded. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. That's John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Now, this is in some ways, I think, a a dangerous verse because it is so open to misinterpretation and misunderstanding. I don't want anyone to walk out of here today believing that when Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands, that he was somehow saying that the stuff of love is law-keeping, that you can love God by law-keeping. If that were true, the Pharisees in the Bible would be the most loving people we find in the Bible. But that's not true. Love does not consist of law-keeping any more than hunger consists of eating. You can't make yourself hungry by eating, and you can't make yourself love the law by keeping the law. No, when you're hungry, you eat quite naturally. Your appetites drive you to food. And when you love who Jesus is, you quite naturally are drawn into imitating him. What John 14, 15 and other verses are saying is that there is a really important link between loving God and loving his laws. When we delight in the commands of God, we are actually delighting in who God is in his character. It's one of the most important ways that we have of saying to God, I love who you are. God's laws are not arbitrarily assigned. He didn't pull out of a hat and say, lying will be bad. Truth-telling will be good. None of it was random. Everything that is right and good is so classified because it agrees with who God is in his character. And all that is wicked and wrong runs contrary to who God is in his character. And so when we come to the laws of God, to put it negatively, if we find God's commands burdensome or boring, or if we think of them as standing in the way of what we'd like to do, guys, That is your attitude towards God himself. If you come to the word of God and you read the commands and you think that's in the way, 
That's how you feel about God. Because there is not a cat's whisker of difference between the commands and who God is. The commands are not something separate from God's character or his nature. They are the expression of it. And again, when we keep commands, we are saying, I love who you are. I think this is something so critically important to understand about the love we're celebrating at Christmas. If you are able to celebrate the love that came down, it is because you love that God who did that, and you want to be like him. The other thing we find here in this, it says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Do you see how quickly that verse makes the leap from recognizing and celebrating something that we see in God to the, that finding expression in how we're going to live as God followers? He laid down his life for us, well, that's how we should live among one another. And again, the cross is this showpiece demonstration of how we're to love one another. I want to help put some um, feet on this. I think when we talk about love, um, not to mix up holidays, but do you guys, maybe you've read the children's book or it's a St. Patrick's Day story about leprechauns. I don't believe in leprechauns, but in the story, a man is out walking along a hedgerow, and he encounters a leprechaun, and before the leprechaun can get away, he grabs him, <laughs> and he shakes him. He says, where's your gold? And he says, ah, mister, let me go. I'll tell you where me gold is. He says, don't kill me. Any Irish people in the audience today? Um, and so the leprechaun tells him, it's buried underneath this bush, but it's buried really deep. You're going to need a shovel. And he says, well, how can I trust you? He said, leprechauns never lie. It's part of their code. We're not allowed to lie. If I tell you it's under that bush, it is certainly underneath that bush. And the guy goes, okay, well, I'm going to let you go and go get a shovel, but you, you, before I let you go, you have to promise you're not going to move the gold. I I promise. And you're not going to, you're not lying to me, I promise. Okay, he lets the leprechaun go, he goes to get a shovel, he comes back. But before he left, he tied a red ribbon on this bush and made the leprechaun promise he wouldn't remove the red ribbon. And then when he came back, that the red ribbon had not been removed, but a red ribbon had been tied on every bush for miles. And it was impossible to tell which bush specifically the leprechaun had pointed to. He didn't, he didn't lie. He didn't move the treasure. He just lost the bush in a great ocean of like bushes, all with red ribbons tied on them. The reason I tell that long, windy story at Christmas time, not St. Patrick's Day, is this. I fear that when we talk about love, it is lost in this sea of other ideas of love. Our culture has all these strange ideas about love. 
And the language we use to describe our loves, our affections, are all the same. It's, it's a tired point made often in churches. I don't mean to, to, uh, I, I don't, I don't mean to bore you with things you've heard before, but I use the same word to say that I love my children as when I say I, I love eating a hamburger. It's a very blunt word. It's, there's no precision in that. And what I fear is when we talk about the love with which Jesus loved us, it is somewhat lost in this fog of American understandings of love. So we really need to be very precise to define carefully what we mean by love. And so let me do that this morning by just saying, pointing out some of the ways Jesus loved us at Christmas. The first and the most basic is that he came to us. He came to us. Matthew 1, through 23 says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, this is perhaps the most basic thing we can say about Jesus' love for us at Christmas, is that he came to us. But in movies and television, love is often portrayed as something that just kind of happens. But the Bible calls us to follow Jesus' example and imitate him by moving toward people with intentionality, purpose, and resolve. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. God's will for his people is not to run aimlessly or to fight like people beating the air. And what is the opposite of a life marked by aimless flailing? Well, it's a life marked by intentional striving. Holiness and God's power unto godliness in a Christian's life is not that they are perfect, but that they are actively, intentionally striving towards what God has called them to. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, there's a call there to, to think and consider how to stir one another up to love. It calls for intentionality and purpose in the way that we live together, of moving towards one another deliberately. Don't neglect meeting together with intentionality let your love for the Father and your love for others find expression in going to them. Matthew 24, 12 through 13, Jesus said, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, and those who persevere to the end will be saved. The love of many will grow cold. 
And when we add that to Hebrews 10, the passage we read before, we are told not to neglect meeting together because that's the place where we'll be spurred on to love and good works. Staying warm in this cold, fallen winter world calls for an intentional striving. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love, that is, to keep one another from growing cold and to good works. So we see how critically important it is for us to go to one another, for each of us personally as Christ's followers that we would heed this command not to neglect meeting together in this way, but through close, intimate contact to prevent sort of a spiritual hypothermia. But let's be square about it. Sometimes it's hard not only to go to one another within the church, but to go to those to represent the truth of the gospel to non-believers, to those who remain outside the church, Uh, specifically because it is hard. And here again, we see this showpiece demonstration of the way that Jesus loved us. Uh, In that idea I presented to the kids, uh, the way that God came to us at Christmas was not the way that I go and look for a Christmas tree. Again, Romans 5.8, the verse I shared with the kids is, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, unlike in English, in the Greek, there were lots of different words for love, four that are typically highlighted. And, but the word John uses here, the word for love that we're celebrating this morning in Greek was the Greek word agape. And at the, at the core essence of agape love is the idea of sacrifice. Agape is a sacrificial love. Loving one another as Christ loved us is oftentimes a costly and one-sided experience. Think about Jesus washing the feet of Judas, serving him in that way even though he knew who Judas was and what he would do. Well, why would Jesus do that? You see, implied in that question that I have, Jesus, why would you wash Judas's feet? Is the hidden assumption in my own heart that an act of such loving service must be a tit-for-tat exchange? When I think to myself, Jesus, why would you wash Judas's feet? when he'll never reciprocate, when he won't be made to love you back. I am, in fact, betraying a pernicious clinging in my own heart that in order to be loved by me, you must be worthy of it. This is the most amazing thing about the love of God that's shown to us at Christmas. The agape love is it is completely an expression of who Jesus is and not your worthiness. And because that is true, you can rest, my friend. (laughs) You can rest in such a love. It was never based upon your excellence. God never loved you because you were particularly wonderful or attractive or good. 
No, he loved you because of who he is, and because that's true, you can rest in that love. God does not love you if, and God does not love you as long as. He loves you, he chose you, because he did. And this is a wonderfully restful thing to see and believe because unlike us, God never changes. Brothers and sisters, let this truth settle down deep into your soul and give you a glorious rest this Christmas. It was never your worthiness or your goodness or your excellence or wisdom that drew Jesus to you. There is a way of doing the Christian life that is marked not by a restful trusting in Jesus, but by a busy, anxious, hand-wringing, uncertain pursuit of God's approval through human striving. Good works become not an expression of your love for God, but rather, perversely, your means of trying to demonstrate to God the worthiness of his sacrifice for you. You cannot try to save yourself without rejecting Jesus as Savior. You can have the cross, but only if you die to the idea of saving yourself. Just rest in what Jesus did. It is wonderful. If you believe deep down that the basis of your salvation lies in your worthiness, then you can never rest, you can never trust, because guys, you are wildly imperfect. You are inconsistent. You are always changing. You are hot some days and cold other days. You're an unfaithful people. You're betrayed from within by a heart that is stained with sin and prone to wander. You love things you shouldn't love and you hate things you shouldn't hate. And if your worthiness before the Lord is is at all built upon or predicated a notion that you are somehow worthy, you are doomed to a life of anxiety in the presence of God. And when Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, that verse will be frustratingly elusive for you to embrace personally until you rest in this love of God that is rooted in who he is, not who you are. But if you believe deep down that your salvation rests on the worthiness of Jesus, the same Jesus who stooped over Judas's feet and washed them as carefully as he did the others, then you can rest because he is a rock that never moves, never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God calls us to love one another in that same way. God, help us. As a church, we need to be a place where people are loved when they are unlovely. 
This must be a place where a different, more excellent way of loving is lived out here among us and made real in the church. This must be a place where when our fellows disappoint us in ways that are catastrophic and horrible, we respond not with the stick, but with love, with grace. We respond to repentance, guys, with a joyful, cheerful welcome home. (laughs) And we encourage one another toward that. This must be a place where that kind of love is lived out because that's what we celebrate. We're all becoming what we worship. And that's why it's so often important that we return to this truth over and over and over again, that we might make Christ visible One last thing, and this is really, I think, where Christmas love that Christians celebrate separates so sharply from the world, is that, guys, it is a forever love. (laughs) It is unending. Think about it. Whatever you love today, if it is not an eternal thing, it will go away. Uh, I, um, I haven't been on Facebook for a long time. I don't mean to always bash on Facebook. It's kind of low-hanging fruit. Everybody's like, well, come on, Josh. Everybody hates Facebook. Yeah, but we're all on it, right? Uh, I, um, I haven't been on Facebook for years, so if you've made this kind of Facebook post recently, don't feel like I'm targeting you. I actually don't, don't have a clue what's going on on there, haven't for a long time. But when I was on there a lot, one of the things that would always kind of rub me the wrong way is when people would say to other human beings that they were their life. What an interesting statement. Guys, I promise you, you will love your family best when you love God most. You will serve your family better when you make God your life. (laughs) You encourage your family to join you in that. Even the best of things in this world are not worthy of that level of adoration. And they are good. Guys, love your family with everything you've got. Love them passionately. Love them sacrificially. But guys, don't make them your life. Love something higher than that, and you'll serve them better. Because this love that we celebrate at Christmas is a forever love. Guys, I love lots of things, like hamburgers (laughs) and Christmas and my children. I love my country. I love songs that I hear on the radio. I love so many things with varying degrees of intensity, but all of them are temporary. All of them. But then listen to this, Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate you from that love we're celebrating here this Christmas season? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Then comes the answer to the question, who shall separate us from this love? And the answer is no. (laughs) In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate you from that love. I love how uh, Paul, when he wrote these verses, he starts listing everything that could possibly be conceived of that might separate us. And then he wraps it up by saying, nor anything else in all creation. And what he's saying there, what is creation? Creation is everything that's not God. There's the creator and then there's his creation. And so what he's saying is nothing in all creation. Which leaves then the ominous possibility, well, what if God? But God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Guys, this is the love we celebrate at Christmas. It is a forever love. Jesus came to us. He loved us in our unworthiness. And he loves us forever. And to quote 1 John 3.16, it says there, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let this love be made real here among us at State Road and thereby make the God of love visible in this place and in these days. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that belongs to us in Jesus. God, thank you for so loving us that the demonstration of that love, the form that it took was in sending Jesus to die for us. Oh, God, what a love. What an amazing, challenging thought. Father, we remember the words of John 13, 34 through 35, God, where Jesus said on the night before he was betrayed, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Father, I pray that we here at State Road would live this command out in a way that would make you visible. God, that would make people question, ask questions about you in their hearts. That as we live these things out here together, as messy and imperfect as we are, God, that somehow in the midst, others would be drawn into a conversation with you, an eternal conversation and that they would receive and become celebrators also of the love that came down at Christmas. God, help us by your Holy Spirit to live these things out here among us and as we go out into the world. God, you love the world. Give us a love for the lost. God, give us a burning passion to go to them, to lay down our lives for them, and to represent you well in the midst of these dark days while we wait for Jesus to come back. And in Jesus' name, amen.